This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And I'm talking to Jonah Peretti, who by the time you hear this podcast, will be running a publicly traded company. Welcome, Jonah. Thanks for having me. I'm talking to you Friday, but people will hear this on Monday. Um, how are you going to commemorate the fact that you're now running a public company? You're trading on the NASDAQ, so there's no bell to ring. What's the ritual you're going to do? Um, we're going we're gonna to have a crew at NASDAQ on Monday. Uh, so I guess that's already happened, So right? Okay. Oh, wow. We're, we're time traveling. Yes, we're time traveling. It's going to be great. We have some nice <laughs> Easter eggs and surprises. So, you know, Google those. Um, and, and uh, we we're doing a, a a cool sweepstakes for the five days after we go public to thank our audience, where there'll be little Easter eggs hidden across BuzzFeed site where you can win things from Complex and Complex Con tickets and BuzzFeed Tasty HuffPost. Uh, oh, wait, prizes. it occurs to me that, you, that maybe you're not joking. I can never quite tell with you. I'm serious. I'm serious. You're serious. There. Okay. Yeah. There are going to be there. There will be prizes for BuzzFeed Complex HuffPost readers. Yes. Okay. Let's let's talk about. I, I'm calling this an IPO. It's not technically an IPO. You guys did a SPAC, which means you sort of took an existing shell company and merged your company into it. There was a lot of interest in SPACs for a while, and now it seems they're less interesting to a lot of investors. You guys were planning on raising up to 250 million dollars from from this de-spacking. I think is the technical term. Uh, but a lot of the existing investors in the SPAC that bought you redeemed their shares. The net result is you raised $16 million instead of $250 million. So what what, is, what do those redemptions signal to you about BuzzFeed and the market? And then more practically, what does that mean for you guys running BuzzFeed that you raised much less than you'd hoped? Sure. Yeah. When we started this process, the SPAC market was very hot. And, you know, there were a lot of companies with very little revenue trading at really high uh, valuations. Um and when we ended the process, the SPAC market was really ice cold, where um, lots of, of the SPAC deals were seeing high redemptions, um, as, as you just described, where, where um, the SPAC investors would pull back funds, um, usually because they, you know, they, they, if the stock price was below $10, they could pull back the funds and then rebuy the stock. And, and so a lot of it was um, you know, arbitrage or, or financial optimization type reasons. But we, we saw that shift several months ago and in the market. And so we structured our deal so that we could get public no matter what. Um, so we did $150 million as a convert, which meant that we had $150 million as the cash contingency for our deal. You, brought, was, you, you, raised, you raised $150 million in debt. Yes. 
Yeah. And that was the that was the contingency for the deal to to be completed. So the SPAC was all extra. Um, and we knew we would get public and we could acquire complex and have the cash to operate, regardless of what level of redemptions were there. And we structured that way, you know, because we saw the market had really shifted and we wanted to make sure that our strategic objective, getting public, buying complex, um, having a currency to buy other companies in the form of a public company stock. Um, was 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 something that would happen regardless of whether the market was good or bad. And um, I would say SPACs are just a means to an end for 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 us. Um, and for us, the acquisition of complex and going public was really the the end we were after. Doing that through IPO, traditional IPO or direct listing or a SPAC, like a year from now, you know, won't really make any difference to us. Yeah. So let's stipulate that long term, if you guys are successful, no one's going to care about the mechanics of how you went public. Facebook was a busted IPO, and Facebook has thrived financially, at least since then. But just practically not having the money that you thought you could have raised, having not, you know 16% of that, how does that affect how you're going to run the business in the near term? The funny thing is about running a business is that if you have a lot of cash and you spend it unwisely, it it it's not, you know, that can be a problem as well. I mean, no matter, our, our strategy really isn't changed by by the redemptions. We have seen the benefit of operating with fiscal discipline, getting to profitability, managing our business with much cl more clarity around inputs and outputs of different parts of our business. We're generating cash as a company. So, so we're not, you know, we're not in a situation like, uh, you know, we're trying to do a, a, a moon landing or a supersonic, you know, hydrogen-powered jet or something, and we need we need to burn tons of cash to get there. We'll, we generate cash from our business, and we also had cash on our balance sheet plus the convert. And so, you know, as I said before, we set the deal up in such a way that we knew we would get public and buy complex and have the cash we needed to operate, regardless of 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 the redemption level. So our strategy doesn't really doesn't really change. Um, and then on the M and A front, um, I mean, cash can definitely be used for for M and A, but the biggest impediment to M and A. Um, in digital media is that it's very hard to do private to private transactions. Um, and you know every every private digital media company, um, including the one you work for, um, has multiple VC investors and any kind of conversation about um, m and a turns into six or eight VCs discussing with each other about speculative value and preference stacks. and it's just very complicated. Getting public and being, a, the leading digital media company that is public and has a public stock is going to simplify M&A from, from, where, from where it was. Um, more cash would be good, but, but having a public company stock, having a clear valuation, being a comp in the market is going to make M&A much easier and is a, is a big benefit in terms of our goal of, of looking for other interesting acquisitions. Yeah, so you, you just half answered the question I, I was going to ask, which is why, again, is it important for you to be public? Because the, the reason you do a SPAC is supposed to be speed. You, you end up paying more to go public, but it's supposed to be faster. You could have gone public other ways. But well, so, so leaving aside the mechanics of the SPAC for a second, the main premise of going public is this is going to make it easier for you to buy other companies. Am I summing that up? Um, that's one of the that's one of the benefits. I, I also think going public will just help us, and it already has helped us up our game operationally, really, you know, managing the company with with more rigor. And that that's something that I think going public really forces you to do that. But you could, you could if you wanted to, if you wanted to have rigor and 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 go on the equivalent of a diet, you could have you could do that without going public. You don't need to go through this process. In, in theory, in theory, it's just interesting how 
going through challenges as a company, like going through COVID, for example, like, you know, forced us and a lot of other companies to do things that they probably should have done anyway, you know, like, but, but a crisis or, or a high benchmark or a bar that you need to clear or, um, or doing better audited financials is something that, you know, in theory, you think, oh, I would do that even if we weren't public. But when you're public, you really put the focus and effort into, into some of these things that you might not otherwise. And I think that will be a benefit for, for, for us, especially as, as we consolidate other attractive targets, because we will have built all this stuff out and done all this hard work. And whether it's on the tech side or um, building out a strong sales team or, or an ad tech platform, all, all, of those, all of those things, or our commerce business, all those things that we've built out are now things that we can use as a platform for other, other companies to benefit from. A couple more SPAC questions, and then I'll stop saying SPAC. Um, in retrospect, given that, that you did, going SPAC is an expensive process and you have these additional complications, would you have done this differently? Could you have just done a traditional IPO? Could you have done a direct listing? Um, this has taken you about a year to do this. In theory, that could have been a traditional IPO. Would, if you could rewind this now, would, would you go a different route? No, but because of Complex. This, the SPAC allowed us to buy Complex as part of going public. And a traditional IPO, we would have um, had to wait for the, the proceeds of the IPO to be able to buy Complex, and someone else would have bought them. Or, or we would have missed, you know, that opportunity, um, and so, so that that's the clearest reason. Um, the other um, reason is that I don't really think in retrospect. Um, you know, I try, you know, not 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 to think in retrospect. Um, but by the time the SPAC market cooled off and wasn't in a strong spot, we were strong enough as a company to still make it through the process. So at that point, switching to a traditional IPO. Um, for cosmetic reasons, because SPACs had a, you know, they were were not didn't have the as good a reputation or something like that. It made made no sense. We we were using it as a means to an end to get public. Last SPAC question. I, I hope this is my last SPAC question for you. As you know, there are a bunch of other companies looking to go public in digital media or or have some sort of combination in some way. Uh, Vice had looked at it and decided not to. Ben Lehrer's company, Group Nine, wants to do it. Not sure about my employer. What what does the the ups and downs of this process mean for everyone else in digital media who's who's looking at going public one way or another? I mean, I think as an industry, we need to enter this new phase. There was a phase where there was a lot of hype and VC investment. Then there was a phase where there was all this pessimism and skepticism, and and people were not believing in digital media and did not believing these companies could get profitable and be good businesses. And I think now we're at a stage of the strongest companies showing that you can be a great business. You can be profitable. You can be grow. You can grow. Um, there's consolidation opportunities that provide more more um, operating leverage. And so we're entering into this new stage of digital media that's the profitable growth stage. And we all need to 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 prove that. And you know, there's a lot of responsibility for for BuzzFeed as the first company going public to show that and to deliver strong results over over the next few years. Yeah, when I call your peers slash competitors, it's a weird mix of of uh, some of them are frustrated with you for various reasons, and and then all of them want you to do well because that would then theoretically 
uh, uh, boost their fortunes. And sometimes it depends on what time of day you're talking to them, how how generous they are or not. But but you again to make it clear, you imagine that this is this process is the beginning of more consolidation. That at some point. BuzzFeed, HuffPost, Complex is going to add other companies of different sizes. Do you just start immediately rolling up other companies? How long do you have to wait before you start acquiring other stuff? I mean, I think you want to be a heat-seeking missile. And that's maybe not the best metaphor because we don't want to blow up the companies. Um, Good. But, but you want you don't, you don't want to essentially have a train schedule that tells you, okay, we're going to do one every single quarter and we're going to do it in this size and that mm -hmm. size. Um, you want to find really great management teams, really great founders, uh, people who are excited about not just building a P&L in a business, but 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 having something that's meaningful to audiences and that matters and, and has has a, a more of a, a mission driven element to it and create a space where they want to come build the next stage of their company. And, and you got to find really great you know, great founders and great companies and strong, strong brands with, with engaged audiences. And when you find those, you should be really aggressive and do as much as possible. Um, but if you don't find something that fits that, it doesn't make sense to, to just do it to do it, you know? We talked a year ago when you'd announced that you were buying HuffPost. Uh, you've integrated, uh, I guess, that company by now. And now you're buying Complex, which is also a digital media publisher, different kind of company. What did you learn about the HuffPost deal that's going to inform how you approach Complex? Oh, they're pretty different. They are pretty different. Um, we're very excited about HuffPost. You know, they are on track to be profitable and contribute to our profit this year. They were they were losing a lot last year. Um, we saw a lot of opportunities to increase their their revenues um, by by adding our ad stack and our commerce uh, business to what they're doing. A lot of engagement on their content. A lot of people go to the front page of HuffPost, get their news every day. So very excited about that one. Um, and then HuffPo um, and then Complex is is um, you know I just went to Complex Con, which was you know tens of thousands of people going for sneaker drops and yeah, in, in real life, it's not a metaverse thing. People attend this event and makes them a lot of money, and people actually go in 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 meet space to go to this thing. Yes, and it was phenomenal. I mean, it was. ASAP Rocky and Rihanna was there cheering and <laughs> like um, it was great. Um, and so they're they 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 have um, you know if, if BuzzFeed is covering what is big on the internet right now or what's big in culture, they're they're often covering what's next, what's coming, what are the things that are emerging. Um, they're more male, um, they're more male skewed. They're they're cooler, you know. They're they they cover fashion and. And, and things in areas that where, where BuzzFeed doesn't have as much of a, of a footprint. So very complimentary. And and we're already learning a lot from their team and, and sharing back and forth. And now that they're part of the company, um, we're, we're able to, to go deeper and really, you know, build together. Complex is going to stay its own brand, presumably wants to keep part at least of its existing culture. How are you thinking about sort of and presumably you're going to buy other companies. How are you thinking about sort of managing a bunch of different brands and, and with their own operators and own audiences? So I think you have these centralized functions, these business functions and HR admin, you know, functions that uh, can be offered as a service to all the different um, parts of the company. And then you have editorial um, brands that are fiercely independent, that have their own culture, that have their own voice. And you preserve that as much as, as you know, you, you preserve that and, and not, 
not just preserve it, but accentuate it and and in, encourage it and 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 give um, support and resources to help the editorial um, brands be as independent as possible. Um, and then underneath those editorial brands, you also have creators, you know, people who are making shows or social media content. And, and so you want them to, prevent, to preserve their individual uh, voices, but have the affiliation of a brand plus all of the other kind of business resources. So you, you sort of have this centralized function that can help help all the different parts of the company. You have strong editorial brands, and then you have strong uh, creators underneath those editorial brands. And it it it's um it's a mix of sort of radically decentralized editorial practice and and more centralized business um, and administration within a, a central organization. Um, so that's that's the that's the way we're we're thinking about it. I have other questions for you. I want to take a quick break so we can hear from sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. I think the first time I met you in person, you were in Chinatown and BuzzFeed was pretty much a lab experiment and you're trying to figure out how to make things go viral. Uh, it never struck me that you were someone who wanted to run a, a, a publicly traded company. At, at what point did that occur to you that that was what you were going to do? Uh, you know, I, I, my goal isn't, wasn't to raise a, to, to, to run a publicly traded company. My goal was to create a new operating model for media that was for the way that I like to consume media, which is on the internet, through mobile, through social, and the way that, you know, now this new generation of young people, millennial, Gen Z, uh, audiences like to consume media. And everyone just assumes that, Anything you see that you like should be shareable. Anything, um, everything should be accessible anywhere in the world. That media should be more personalized, and um, that you should be able to go deeper into things you care about. Like all those, all those things, we saw that coming, and we wanted to build a media company for that world, for the internet-centric media company for young people that took young people seriously. Um, and, and all the diversity of the millennial and Gen Z generations, which are the most diverse generations ever, we wanted to build a media company for that for, for for them, and and that was something that took a lot of work over many years to build. Um, you had to build a whole new operating model for media, and so the natural next step, and I, I'm I'm thrilled and can't believe we're at this point with over half a billion dollars in revenue this year, profitable. You know, ringing the bell at NASDAQ with HuffPost, Complex, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed News, Tasty as part of this media company that's built from the ground up for the for the internet 
age and the internet models of of consumption. Um, so it's even really though I'm recording this, that, even though I'm recording this in the past, I can hear in the future a bunch of people screaming, "You're not profitable." Um, so technically, you are not profitable, right? You're, you're describing yourself as, as cash flow positive or 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 in positive in terms of EBITDA, right? Can we just can we sidebar that for a second? Or are you um, saying you actually are going to be profitable in Q4? We'll we'll be we'll be profitable for for the year. Um, I mean, I don't know what metric of profitability you want to want to want to use, but you t- um, you tell me. <laughs> pick, you pick your metric. Yeah, I mean, we'll generate cash this year and next year. We'll we we have uh, around twenty million in in adjusted EBITDA last year, and much more than that this year. So, I mean, um, you can I can bring my CFO, and if you want to like talk through no. talk through this, the, more, more the detail, remaining but. listeners would, would would have would have jumped off the podcast by then. So I interrupted <laughs> while you while you were explaining why. So you were t- telling me why you wanted to build this business, but that's different than saying I, Jonah Peretti, want to run a public company. There's lots of drawbacks and hassles to that. Um, not just dealing with people like me. You've now got to do quarterly earnings calls and all. There's a lot of rigmarole and reporting. When did you decide? Yeah, public is the way I want to do this. As I mean, do you want to live in privately? a world where the only people who run public companies have their goal is to run a public company? They don't even care what the company does, you know? Um, I mean, I feel like there's there is um, you should have some companies in the world where the people running them have thought deeply about the space for many years and, and are most excited about building something new and building creating new models and 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 are passionate about the mission of the company. Um, so, you know. Going public is a means to to an end, and I see the I see an opportunity to do a lot more with building the modern model for media that is, you know, mobile, social, digital, native, uh, and and going public helps us do that, um, and it helps us um, recruit other interesting, like minded founders and management teams to join us to to build this next stage. Are you going to offload some of the the going public responsibilities to to other folks on your team? Once you get through this this initial step, I mean, I, I I offload every everything you can possibly imagine on all different parts of our business. I mean, I know that like founders of companies get a lot of attention um, as the sort of focal point of of for for a company, um, and I I do hope I contribute a lot uh, to the company. Um, but we have a tremendous team of people who've been working so hard on this, and you know, from our legal team and finance and. Um, HR um, and you know all of the the work we've done with outside counsel and other outside you know support from bankers and you know it, it's a it's a huge process and then the the content teams and the people who are reaching the audience every day and generating the sales and I mean I don't know I'm not trying to give like a acceptance speech here uh, <laughs> but um, but you know it, it, it is a it is a massive team effort and um, the way that our team has um, managed through the covid period and the pandemic and and changes to our business and going from being just native advertising to adding in significant commerce and programmatic and display and all kinds of other um, revenue lines I mean it's pretty it's pretty remarkable how much people have stepped up across the company to to, to do this Speaking of your content team, uh, on the Thursday, the day before we recorded this, 61 of them, the folks who work at BuzzFeed News, walked off the job for a day. They don't have a contract yet. Um, they say they've got a bunch of demands. Essentially, they want more money, among other things. Um, why has it taken so long for, for that contract negotiation to, to reach a conclusion? Um, I mean, I, th- I think 
it's it's um it's an interesting process to have a negotiation like in a business negotiation if you say hey i want to use your software and it's a million dollar license fee and then the vendor says no it's 2 million and you you can't agree then you just sort of walk away and you don't have a have a deal um in this kind of a negotiation, if you have a, a division that just does excellent journalism, like one of Pulitzer, multiple Pulitzer finalists, like breaking amazing stories, hugely important for the mission. But um, and I'm not blaming them for this, but um, the model that we've uh, that we've taken, which is really deep original journalism that is freely available to the broadest public, that's not behind a paywall. We're not you know sort of pandering to wealthy subscribers. We're we're really focused on, you know, putting our, our news out there to inform the broadest public on these social platforms where there's such a need for this content. We've taken that approach and it has been okay, but not great from a business standpoint. So there's this like kind of- You're, you're talking about BuzzFeed News. Yeah, just BuzzFeed News. I mean, mm-hmm. the, it, it's, it's, the, it's the one part of our content. It's the only content team at the, at, at, at the company that, um, that doesn't contribute- profit to the company. You know, it's the it's the only one where it's subsidized by the other parts of the business. Which you were and, comfortable with for a very long time. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm still comfortable with it. I'm still comfortable with it. It's not um, to, to a point, to a point, but it's not the same point it was in the past. And so I think that people have this expectation that um, what we've done in the past in terms of, you know, the sort of more massive subsidies of news is something that we will continue to do at that same level. And we need to, you know, we can do it to a to a point, but but we have to make sure that we um, build a sustainable, profitable, growing business that um, so that we can do this journalism for years to come and have this great important impact. Um, and so I think there's there's a little bit of the of the um, you know this is a you know four and a half percent of our employees, um, and they are doing really great important work, and I love the journalism they they do, and. You know, if, if you can't come to an agreement on a negotiation quickly, it takes a long time, you know, and I wish I wish you could come to agreement quickly. But it's hard when business realities and that sort of social impact and importance of the of the journalism are not are not, you know, t- totally in line. And um, it has been impressive what The New York Times has done over the, the you know recent years where they've been able to generate a really significant business through subscription. But if you do look at the numbers of how wealthy the subscribers are, and um, and their readers are, you know that helps a lot when you focus on older, wealthier people, and and not on making journalism freely available across all the different platforms, including the social platforms that are that that need quality, free, freely distributed content more than more than ever. And so it's um, you know, I I I feel like there should be a a um, a good path forward to align business and and journalistic um, benefits, but it's it's not a simple solution given the media ecosystem that we operate in. Wait, I want to I be clear because we talked about the New York Times and they've got a subscription business and, and you guys have an ad supported one last time and, and we can talk about that for a second. But I want to be clear, can't, do you think that BuzzFeed News as a sort of standalone news-driven organization can be profitable and should be profitable? Or are you willing to say, look, it's never going to cover its costs. And I think it's important. And we're going to subsidize um, that part of the business um, in perpetuity. 
Um, I mean, I think making comments about perpetuity is probably not not. All right, that. strike perpetuity. <laughs> should should that, BuzzFeed that, News that, be making a profit? But, um, I think that I think that I I think what BuzzFeed do, News is, does is really important, and it's something that um, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly like it, it's a it's a weird thing to it's a, it's a hard thing for me to sort of talk about openly because it's really. It wasn't my choice to have a union. It was the BuzzFeed News employees. Yeah, choice. let's be clear. You were you you thought unionizing was a bad idea for your employees. You said that out loud a couple of different times. I, I I think it um it's a you know hugely contentious adversarial bureaucratic difficult way to figure out how to find innovative solutions to challenges in the industry that move everything forward, and. It also specifies that all these kind of kinds of things that we normally want to talk about happen at a bargaining table where there's lawyers and professionals and union organizers. And so it makes it hard to engage because it's so formalized. And it's this way at all these companies, you know, like the idea that it's going to be different at different places is like it, it's like very similar at lots of, of different different companies. But it's not my choice. And I accept that it's not my choice. And it's um and part of it is about, you know, taking, taking, uh, you know, making, making their own choice. And that's, that's fine. But for me, it's just, I need to make sure that this important journalism that we do can continue. And I need to make sure that our business is on strong financial footing. And that's what I'll, I'll, I'll do. And that's sort of my role in the, pro in, in the process. I don't want to end this conversation with a, a discussion about contentious union organizing. Um, <laughs> Give me, give me a, let's, let's go back. Uh, you don't want to look at the past, so you don't want to talk about not selling to Disney. Uh, you're comfortable running a public company. What's the best part of running a public company for you on day one? Well, we've, we've done it for one day. So the moment of having everyone come together, who've worked together in some cases for over a decade, um, you know, the two members of the founding team are still at the company. For all of us to be able to come together and ring the bell move forward with complex and HuffPost as part of part of the part of the business now. It, it's um hard to imagine that we would, you know, have made it this far with, you know, over half a billion in revenue and just so much opportunity in front of us to to build and to be in, in a in a new state. I think digital media has been in a state for the last three years where everyone has been kind of had their heads down operating and managing and trying to get to profitability and sustain you know, prove that digital media can be a good business. And we're entering this new phase now where digital media is undervalued, but has become a good business and has become a business that um, has a lot of potential that we're excited to really untap um, and um, for, our, for our benefit and also for the benefit of, of your employer and other digital media companies that I think are probably uh, undervalued as well. Thank you. I, I, I can't let you go without asking you a Web3 slash crypto slash blockchain question. You are a tinkerer. You like playing around with, with different bits of technology. Um, it strikes me that, that if this was, if, if you were 10 years younger and not running BuzzFeed, you'd be all in on, on some version of Web3, even though we can't define what that is. Is there something about that that appeals to you? Um, I think intellectually... It's very interesting. Bitcoin is a technical marvel, and and it's it's pretty um, incredible and something that I like reading about and thinking about and have for 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 many many years. Um, to me, the thing that will be most exciting about uh, this space is if um, if it can 
move beyond just sort of obsession around financialization of everything and speculation on everything towards um, interesting communal models. Uh, I mean, not to talk more about unions, for example, but one one thing that I think some people hope that DAOs will will do is create rules up front about what the share, what a fair way to share value might be in a in mm-hmm. a shared enterprise, and rules for voting about decisions that could be kind of agreed upon in advance with the right kind of democratic process put in place, so that value would accrue in a way that everyone kind of is aware of and is transparent and knows about. And so I think there's there's definitely some interesting models. Um, that could. Chris Chris Dixon, who used to be on your board, uh, at Andreessen Horowitz, is now sort of their leading advocate for Web3. And he argues that you can apply this stuff. And, and we're, again, we're using a lot of buzzwords here, but it, it's essentially using the blockchain to, to operate media uh, businesses is something that you could do where, where creators can get better compensation for the work they do. Do you think that works? Is there a version of a media company or conglomerate or organization that, that runs on the blockchain? Uh, I mean, I think... I need to go have dinner with Chris and have a long conversation about this topic, and then maybe we'll come and do a podcast together. I don't know. Deal. Okay. <laughs> Let me know. There's definitely some interesting possibilities, but there's all there's a lot of questions around um, how do you manage some of the problems that that are emerging on social media now with a with you know fairly decentralized participants on these networks, even though the networks themselves are, are centralized, and you know how do you manage you know things things that like, you know, rise of hate groups and things like that. And um, I don't think Web3 necessarily makes that problem worse, but I don't think there's been that much thought about how does this all play out. Once this is popular and people can use these tools, what does this decentralized network do? And what what are all the ramifications of that? And how do you manage? I think one thing, yeah, one thing we have learned over the last 10 years is is we ought to consider what happens when bad people get to use these cool tools we're creating that allow us to do cool stuff. There are bad there are bad people in the world. And one of the things that gets me excited about what we're doing is that spreading joy and truth and creativity, it can sound cheesy or or you know, but we have an opportunity to make media that is more inclusive, that allows people to see themselves in media that is more positive. And do that with more resources to have um, a positive impact on society and our audience. And it just decentralizing everything and having everyone try to do their own thing is, you know, it, it, it's not clear what kind of world that leads to. And I think we should think more about it because there's there's definitely, you know, trade-offs. Jonah Peretti, CEO of a hierarchical, publicly traded company, BuzzFeed, <laughs> trading at BZFD. Did I get the ticker right? Yep, BZFD. Okay. Thank you, Jonah. All right. Thanks, Peter. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts.